Good morning, church. My name is Jeff Brookshire, and I'm one of the teaching elders here at Crossroads, and we are in the third week of a series called Gotchas, where we are exploring some of the issues that sabotage our relationships, and then looking into the Bible and finding the life-giving principles that help us have healthy relationships. So let me ask you, how many of you would consider yourself to be religious? Do you consider yourself to be religious? Some say yes, some say not so much. It really all depends on your definition of what you mean by religious, right? But by the world's definition, we are considered, most of us, to be religious. Do you believe there is one God? If so, then you would be considered by the world's definition to be religious. Do you read the Bible? Religious. Do you go to church? Religious. Do you pray? Religious. Do you give money to the church? Religious. Do you attend a small group? Religious. Do you serve in a ministry? Religious. All of these things, if you do any of them, you are considered by the world's definition to be religious. But beware. Religion has the potential of strengthening your relationships, or religion can also have the potential of destroying your relationships. Being religious has the potential of strengthening your relationship with God, but religion can also have the potential of destroying your relationship with God. Case in point, the older brother of the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son was told by Jesus, and it is a parable. Jesus told many parables throughout the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can read them for yourself. But for me, one of my favorite is the parable of the prodigal son. It's recorded in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus, or Luke tells us who Jesus was speaking to in the crowd that day. He says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So picture in your mind's eye, Jesus is teaching. He's teaching to a large crowd, and in that crowd are mixed in the, those who were far from God, the tax collectors and the sinners, and those who were considered by the world's definition close to God, those who were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Mixed in that crowd were those who were religious and non-religious. And, and Jesus, to both of these groups, he tells this amazing story. He begins by telling them that a rich man, a very rich man, had two sons. And the youngest son came to him with a very disturbing request. He said, Father, give me my share of the estate. Give me my share of my inheritance. Now, this would have disturbed the people in the crowd that day, both religious and non-religious. They would have been upset by this. Why? Because when do you usually get your share of the inheritance of the one who wrote the will? After the one who wrote the will dies, right? So basically, the young son is coming to him and saying, Father, I've been patient. I've been waiting and waiting and waiting to get my share of the estate, but you just keep going. I've been waiting for you to die, but you just keep going. You're like the Energizer Bunner. 
Bunny, you're going and going and going and going. And the longer you keep going, the more I'm separated from my share of the estate. Well, this would have made the crowd very angry to hear him asking for his share of the estate, right? And they would not have blamed him, the father I mean, for blessing out his son. But the father, Jesus says, does something rather shocking. He says, okay. So then according to the inheritance laws of the day, he gave two-thirds of the estate to the older son and one-third to the younger son. Strike number one. The older son, the, older, the younger son, I should say, then does something that's even more shocking. He's not content to stay in relationship with his father and his family, but instead he turns his back on them. He sells everything that he owned, his buildings, his land, his livestock. He sold it all and turned it into cash. Then he turned his back on his family and his father, and he left them. He left them to go to a people that he didn't even know. He left the land of the religious, the people who believed in one God, and he went to a foreign country that believed in many gods that were non-religious. Strike number two. And while there, while there, it says that he lived like one who was non-religious. He squandered all of his wealth, all of that inheritance cash, on wild living. He became bankrupt financially. So much so that he couldn't find a job to do except for getting in the pigsty with the pigs and feeding the pigs. Strike number three. And yet this young man was not just bankrupt financially, he was now bankrupt relationally, right? Because he broke off his relationship with his father and his family. And the friends that he had when he had the money, you know how this goes, right? When you've got the money and you're paying for the parties, boy, you got a lot of friends. But once the money dries up, so do the friendships many times. So now this man was not only bankrupt relationally and financially, he was also bankrupt morally. Not only was his body covered in the mud and the muck and manure of the pigsty, but his soul was covered with the mud and the muck and manure of sin. Those in the crowd that day, both religious and non-religious, would have been in agreement that this young man had hit rock bottom. There was no place lower that he could go. So let me ask you, can any of you relate to this young man? <laughs> Have any of you ever made boneheaded decisions based off of disrespect or greed or pride or lust or envy? Have any of you ever found yourself, at least at some point in your life, far from God? Have you ever found yourself morally bankrupt and at rock bottom? If you answered yes to any of those questions, then you know this truth. That when you come to the end of yourself, 
you find the beginning of God. When you come to the end of yourself is the beginning of God. When you hit rock bottom, there is no place else to look but up. It's there and then in that pigsty at rock bottom that the youngest son comes to his senses. He recognizes that he has sinned against his father. He has sinned against his family. He has sinned against himself and God. And he comes to his senses. He comes to the place of confession and repentance. And so he makes his way back to his father. Why? Because he wants to tell his father that he's sorry. He wants to confess his sins to his father. And so as he's making his journey home, he starts rehearsing his confession. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And as he was rehearsing that confession over and over again, as he made his way home, when he got close to home but still a long way off, he saw something he didn't expect to see. There was his father watching and waiting for him. And when his father saw him, his father was filled with rage because this son had told him that he wished he were dead. The father was filled with rage because he had turned his back on his family and his father. The father was filled with rage because he had squandered all of the money that the father had worked so hard to make. The father was filled with rage. Wait. Wait. That's not what Jesus says. That's what we expect when we're at rock bottom. That's what we expect when we're morally bankrupt. That's what we expect when we're mired in sin. But that's not what Jesus said. Listen to what Jesus says. But while the youngest son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion, not rage, compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Even before the youngest son could even get the first word of confession out of his mouth, the father ran to him and called out to the servants, told them to get the robes of sonship and to cover up the mud and the muck and the mire of his sin, of his body. He called for the servants to get the rings of sonship and put it on his fingers. He called for the servants to get the fatted calf, the fatted calf that was being set aside and saved for a day when there would be a great reason to celebrate. He had them set aside that fatted calf and prepare it for a great celebration, a great party. The father had been watching and waiting for him to come home. And when he did, he received him home. Oh, how the hearts of the tax collectors and the sinners, those who were non-religious, must have leapt within them because they recognized that they were the prodigal son. They recognized that they were the ones who were bankrupt morally. They were the ones who were at rock bottom. They were the ones who were far from God. 
Oh, how their hearts leapt with joy when they heard that the Father was not filled with rage for them, but was filled with compassion for them and love and grace and mercy, and that he had been watching and waiting for them to come home for a very long time. So I say, come home. Come home. All of you who are far from God, come home. Come home. All of you who feel like you are morally bankrupt, come home. Come home. All of you who are at rock bottom, come home. Come home. All of you who have sinned against the Father and against others, come home. You see, the thing about it is, is that when you come home, all you have to do is take one step towards the Father. And what does the Father do? He runs to you. He makes up the rest of the distance. When you just take one step, that's all you have to take. The Father will shower down upon you his compassion and his love and his forgiveness and his grace. Just come home. Come home. Oh, how the hearts of the non-religious, the hearts of the tax collectors and the sinners leapt within them. But not all of the hearts slept with joy that day. Some burned with anger. This isn't right, they thought. This isn't fair, they reasoned. The prodigal son should be punished, not celebrate. Celebrated, they judged. And so Jesus told this second part of the story to them, to those who were religious, who were judging them. He says this, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called out to one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back home safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has surrendered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Friend, was this about fattened calves or young goats? Nope. Remember, the oldest son he had plenty of fattened calves and young goats because when the father separated the estate, he gave two-thirds of it, according to the inheritance laws of the day, to the older son. It wasn't about fattened calves and young goats. It was about the darkness of his soul, a soul that was darkened by judgmentalism. Judgmentalism always destroys relationships because it divides us from others, right? I mean, I don't have to talk about this a whole lot. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point because, quite frankly, we could see it. We could see it how the older brother was separated, divided from his younger brother. 
But the truth of the matter is, how many of you have been judged before? Anybody been judged by somebody else before? Well, tell me, did you feel all warm and fuzzy for that other person when they were judging you? <laughs> no. Did you feel closer to them when they were judged? No. It divides you. Judgmentalism always does that. It destroys relationships by dividing us from one another, and judgmentalism destroys relationships by dividing us from God. I mean, think about it. Remember when the oldest son threw his temper tantrum? Who was he the most angry with? Sure, he was angry with his younger brother, but he was angry the most with his father. Because his father, instead of receiving the younger son home with rage, received him with compassion. He was angry with the father because of the father, instead of turning his back on his youngest son, he received him home. He was filled with rage because the father, instead of punishing the youngest son, he threw a party because he was home. Friend, do you believe there is one God? Good. Do you pray? Good. Do you read the Bible? Good. Do you attend church? Good. Do you do all the other things I mentioned in the message? Good. But if you do those things only to gain brownie points with God, that's not so good. And if you do those things only to get brownie points with others, that's worse, Jesus tells us. It's worse. Why do we read the Bible? Why do we pray? Why do we go to church and all of those other things? It's because we are seeking to develop the heart of the Father in our own lives. We're seeking to become more like God. We're seeking to have His love developed in us so that we can love others with the same love that God has given us. We're seeking to have the same compassion that God has for us and for others developed in our hearts so that we can be compassionate with one another. We want the same grace that God has for us and for others. Grace meaning getting what you do not deserve. We want that same grace given to us so that we can give to others the forgiveness that they do not deserve. We want the same mercy that God has for us and for others to be developed in our hearts. Mercy meaning not getting what you deserve so that we can not give to others what they deserve. The goal of being religious is to develop the heart of God within us to be more like him not to gain brownie points. And when we do that, when the heart of God is developed inside of us, we grow closer to God. But those who judge, it divides them in their relationship with God, it divides them in their relationship with others, it divides them from the truth about themselves. Because in judgmentalism, the older brother did not realize, he was blinded by the fact that he too was a prodigal in need of the father's forgiveness. See, 
He took the high moral ground, which people who judge others always take the high moral ground, right? They're, they're up here looking down on other people. He reasoned that he was better than his brother. He reasoned that his sins were not as bad as his brother. And in so doing, he was blinded from the fact that he needed forgiveness. He reasoned that his sins were small. He minimized them, making them smaller than they really were. And he maximized his brother's sins, making them bigger than what they really were. And from that position, he reasoned that his brother's sins were worse than his. When the fact of the matter is, is that his brother's sins were not worse than his, they were just different. Just different. Judgmentalism blinded him from being able to see his own sins. It divided him from seeing the truth about himself. And so, judgmentalism separated him from God it separated him from others, and it always separates us from the truth about ourselves. So how do you cure judgmentalism in your heart? It's not that difficult, really. The first is, is to make a fearless, careful, and complete inventory of your moral failures. Look at the word that I had underlined. It doesn't say their moral failures. It says your, my moral failures. I'm telling you, if you take the time, hopefully today, and you sit down with a pad of paper and you start writing out the sins that you've committed and you start just asking the Holy Spirit to convict you and to write down those sins, you will be able to come to a place where God wants you to be, and that's a place of humility. The Bible says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and what will he do? He will lift you up. Humble yourselves. That's the place that we've got to begin. When we are feeling judgmental against somebody else, we need to come to grips with the truth about ourselves and not minimalize and then maximize, but instead see that we both need forgiveness. The second thing we need to do is in our own way, then ask God for forgiveness of the sins that we wrote on the paper. Thirdly, then accept the grace and mercy that God gives you. This is a part where I hear a lot of Christians never get to. They confess their sins and then continue to wallow in them. Continue to wallow in the shame and the guilt of them. When the fact of the matter is, is that the Bible tells us that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and forgives us our sins and cleanses us of all of our unrighteousness. That God separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. That God throws our sins into the sea of forgetfulness. That we no longer have to wallow in our guilt 
and shame, but we are forgiven. We need to accept the grace and the mercy that God has given us. That means that we recognize that somehow, not by our doing, but by the grace of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose again from the dead on the third day, that by the grace of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. And we could take that piece of paper and we could burn it. We could take that piece of paper and we could shred it. We could take that piece of paper and destroy it forever because we are forgiven by the grace of God. Accept the grace and mercy that God has given you, and then lastly, give the same away. Give grace and mercy away. You want to follow Jesus as your Lord? Give grace and mercy to others. Some of you here today were able to identify with the older brother. Some of you here today were convicted by the Holy Spirit because he put in your mind a name or names of someone or someones who you have a heart of judgmentalism towards. What I say to you is to make a fearless, careful, and complete inventory of your moral failures. Ask God to forgive you. Accept the grace and mercy that God gives you. And then give the same away to those that you're thinking about. Some of you here today identified with the youngest brother. You recognize that you're the prodigal son. You're the one who is far from God. You're the one who is morally bankrupt. What I say to you is, make a fearless, careful, and complete inventory of your moral failures. Ask God to forgive you. Accept God's grace and mercy. And give the same away to others. Jesus concluded the story in this way. He said that the father said to the older brother, we had to celebrate and be glad. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Friend, a celebration with your name on it is just beyond your confession. Let us pray. Before we pray, I'd like for you to spend some time asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to you areas in which you have sinned, in which you have failed morally. Just spend some time asking him to reveal the truth about yourself to you.
in your own words, ask God to forgive you or repeat the words after me. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against others. I am no longer worthy to be called your child. Please forgive me. I turn from my sins. I don't want to go there anymore. Please forgive me for my sins. And now, in your own words, or repeat after me, accept the grace and mercy that God gives you. Lord Jesus, I thank you for dying on the cross. I thank you for rising from the dead. I thank you for doing that because you love me. You made up the distance when I started home. Please give me the ability to accept your grace and mercy. May I be able to know that you have forgiven me and I am clean. And now in your own words, or repeat after me, ask the Holy Spirit to empower you to give grace and mercy away. Holy Spirit, I don't want to spend my life in the dungeon of judgmentalism any longer. I want to be free. I want to be like you. So please develop the heart of the Father in me that I may give away grace and mercy and love and compassion to others. Thank you for speaking to us today. Thank you for speaking to us. I pray that you will knit us knit this message down deep into our hearts, that when we're faced this week with the problems of judgmentalism, that we'll respond with grace and mercy. I pray in Jesus' name.